You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning. We're going to continue in 1 Corinthians. If you want to open to chapter 9, we'll just be finishing off chapter 9 and uh, the beginning of chapter 10. Well, um, we are carrying on from Tommy last week, uh, and Tommy did really well serving us with how Paul was saying, what I am in Christ is I am free. I'm a free man in Christ, but also in Christ I am compelled. Paul saying in chapter 9, I'm a free man, but I cannot use my freedom to put my feet up and coast. I'm, I'm compelled. I must win some more for this Christ. He, uh, he's compelled to to be all things to all men, that he might win some. Commentator David Pryor says of Paul, every encounter, every personal habit was now overtly under the control of Jesus Christ as Lord because the gospel dominated his whole life. He was living his daily life in the light of eternity and that meant evangelism with integrity, relationships with adaptability and personal holiness with single-mindedness. So last week we looked a lot at how Paul uh, was an evangelist with integrity. He was not going to change his message. I preach Christ crucified. That's my message, says Paul. It is salvation to those who believe. That is his message. He's not going to change it, but he was also uh, adaptable in his relationships. If it might save some, I will be a Jew to the Jewish. I will be weak to the weak. If it might save some, I will be adaptable in my relationships. And today we're going to look a bit more at his single-mindedness in terms of holiness. He is a free man, absolutely free in Christ, but compelled. He is active. He is running a race. And that is the mark of a believer who revels in the gospel of God's grace. If you are enjoying God's grace, if you're reveling in it, if you're a, a, a saved Christian following after Jesus, and you're reveling in the gospel, you will be free and compelled at the same time. The good news of knowing that peace with God that you so need desperately and cannot achieve on your own has been given to you by God. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it, but he gave himself for me. A more radical and committed love than you could ever imagine and that you could ever find anywhere else. Free. There's no catch. And therefore, because I'm free, because I've been won at such a price, I am utterly compelled to respond with complete trust, to respond with surrender, knowing that that for a Christian, the strongest position you can hold is down on your knees. Surrendering to him. That seems bizarre to people aren't looking on. Why do you think that that is a strong position to hold? Because I'm surrendering to the one who has all my good in his heart. His intentions for me are so good. And loyalty. He is my king. So we, we turn to uh, chapter 9, <clears throat> starting at verse 23. And on to chapter 10, verse 12. This is what Paul says. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? 
So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's speaking here of the Israelites in the Exodus story. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Father, we just want to commit our hearts to you now as we listen to your word opened up. We pray, Father, for you to do a a miraculous work by your spirit, where we are callous in heart, where we're determined not to hear you. I pray, would you break down walls, help us to be softened. You've promised, Lord, you can make a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So I pray you would do that today, that we would remember who we are, what we're called to, that we would be excited about running after Jesus, that we would know that you've called us to a mighty work, that you're about a good work in us and through us. We thank you for your promise that your word will not come back fruitless. So we pray, Lord, bear fruit in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, to observers at the finish line, Rosie Ruse must have seemed like the fittest athlete ever to run the Boston Marathon. On this day, April 21st, 1980, the 26-year-old New Yorker finished first among the marathon's women runners in near record time. Just over two and a half hours. Even more impressive, when officials crowned her the winner, she was barely sweating. Her hair was still perfectly styled and her face was hardly flushed after the 26-mile race. Officials were dubious, however, partly because of her unsweaty nonchalance and partly because no one, neither competitors nor spectators, could remember having seen her during the first 25 miles. When witnesses came forward a few days later to say they'd seen her run onto the course from the sidelines, just a mile from the finish line, her medal was revoked. Ruse's own admissions might have given her away in any case. She acknowledged that she'd only started training 18 months earlier by running around Central Park. And she'd only ever competed in one other marathon, the New York Marathon, where she'd had a notably slower, although still impressive, time. More deception was revealed when New York Marathon officials looked into her 24th place finish in that race and discovered that she'd used a very similar strategy to qualify for the Boston Marathon by taking the subway instead of running most of the course. (laughs) So... 
Ruse here, Rosie Ruse, her behavior was pretty terrible, pretty cheeky, pretty terrible. But one thing I can sympathize with her about is that her method is probably the only way I could complete a marathon. (laughs) See, not many of us want to run marathons. But those of us who do take it very seriously. There's a lot of work that goes into finishing a marathon. A lot of thought that goes in. A lot of preparation. A lot of purposefulness. Think about the prize. Even even get your thoughts into line. And Paul continues his letter today to the Corinthians. He, He takes the opportunity to give them this loving, sober warning. Not merely to tell them off, but to call them to something worth giving themselves to. He senses that they're spiritually getting a bit flabby. They're unfit. And therefore, they're in danger of not finishing the race. If you're a parent here, you know that a lot of your parenting arguments come down to the fact that you have more ambition for your children than they have for themselves. You asking them to do things that they're not ambitious about. Out of love, you want to see them take what is available. You want them to grow strong and healthy and to achieve things. And so you ask them to do things that naturally they wouldn't want to do. My middle son, Luca, he's a lovely boy. He's so much fun. He's probably my favorite. Uh, no, not, not really. I'm joking. Um, he, we, we've given him a tiny job uh, that he would clear the table after dinner. Uh, the rubbish would go into the bin, yogurt pots and bits of food. And... Um, and the other one he has is to put the cutlery from the cutlery thing after the dishwasher into the drawer again. <clears throat> but you would think that we'd given him the job of jumping off the roof with how he responds when we say, Luca, can you just do your job? Oh, why? Oh. Look, this takes you like 30 seconds, Luca. It's fine. Calm down. And this is Paul's heart here with the Corinthians. He, he loves them. He's got great ambition for them. He wants them to finish well and not be disqualified from what God has in store for them. He loves them dearly. And he knows that God's love for them completely outweighs his love. Because the thing is, starting a race is very easy. Starting a race is simple. Finishing a race is the hard part. I, got, uh, I had a group of friends when I was a teenager. We were in church youth together. We all followed Jesus together. It was about 20 years ago. And uh, there's probably about 10, 12 of us. And now, 20 years later, there's only two of us still following Jesus. The reality is that starting a race is easy. Finishing it is the difficult part. Paul's illustration is perfect. The Israelites' Exodus story, it's like a template for us of salvation, of redemption in Christ. It's like this picture that, that God knew this is, this is what... This is what it's going to happen to you in Jesus. This is a redemption story you're to look back on. If you were to go to our renewal group on Tuesday evenings, this is what our whole renewal group is based around. The the story of the Exodus and us trying to understand what's happened as we've become Christians. What's happened to us? What are we walking out of? And the Exodus story is a story of the, the Israelites in Egypt and they are in slavery. They are being heavily oppressed at the hands of a horrendous Pharaoh, who, who is scared of them, actually, because they're multiplying in number, and he decides, I'm going to put them under heavy burden, and they're oppressed. And, uh, and they call out to God, and it says beautifully, God heard their cry. God is a God who hears your cry. It says, God heard their cry, and he knew them. And that word in the Bible is a very intimate word, knew. He knew them. 
It actually uses that word for sex in the Bible. If people later, they knew each other. It's a very intimate word. God heard their cry and he knew, I know what you're going through. I know your pain. And he heard them. And so he put this plan into action where he he rose up uh, Moses, who is supposed to be for us like a Christ-like figure, who was the man who would uh, obey God and the people would follow him as he followed God and walk out of slavery. And through an incredible picture of, of power, God's power and might overthrowing the enemy. And eventually the climax of the story being that they're passed through the Red Sea. And the enemy, they look back in the Red Sea and see the enemy destroyed in the sea. As the, as the water towers down on the enemy and they're all drowned. And, and the Israelites can finally say, yes, our oppressor is dead. All dealt with, all done. And as Christians, we know that's our story. Our past oppressor, sin and death, is dealt with. By Jesus. We've walked through that. Jesus has made a way where there was no way. The Israelites had to go through the sea. God made a way where there was no way. That's the picture that we're looking at here. And we see Jesus saying, I've made a way where there was no way. But the Israelites, it's almost like they're looking back and saying, yes, good riddance to our past. And that is dealt with and we're free. And then they turn around and they, oh, wilderness, sand, nothing. This is harder than I thought. And it's helpful for us as Christians, and this is what Paul's getting to here, to say, don't, don't be like the Israelites who, who they found their freedom. They were free to worship. They're free to follow God. Free to trust him. Free to be with him in his presence. They had the Ark of the Covenant with them, the presence of God. Free to be with him. And what did they do with their freedom? Well, they worshipped other false gods. They worshipped man-made gods. They made up excuses There's a hilarious story of where uh, they made for themselves a golden calf. And Moses finds them worshipping it. He says, what on earth are you doing? And the excuse is, well, we just threw some gold in the fire and this came out. (laughs) It's not my fault. This This is the sort of thing we're supposed to learn from, guys. They betrayed God like a newlywed bride committing adultery. He just brought them out. He just saved them. You're my beloved I'll be your God, you'll be my bride. And then he finds they're worshipping created things rather than the creator. And they didn't really trust him either. They grumbled at the lack of food. They grumbled that things were not done on their terms. They looked back and they even said at one point, oh, I'd rather be back in Egypt. Can you imagine? I'd rather be back in the slavery. Do you know why? Well, we could eat meat there. Imagine that. I'd choose to go back to slavery because one thing, meat, was there. We knew, we knew the deal there. We knew, yeah, we were oppressed, but we knew what we were getting. With this God, we have to follow him day by day. We, have, we don't know what he's going to do next. We have to keep going back to him. We don't get things on our terms. Jesus, uh, God provided food for them. God provided manna. And he put a system together. He said, you've got to come uh, every day. Every day you've got to come and get more manna. Apart from Saturday, the Sabbath, you don't have to collect that day. That's a day off. He said, this is how it's going to work. The, the food will go off daily. So you'll have to come daily. You can't take a week's worth of food and not come back. But on the Friday, it won't go off for two days. So you've got it for two days. It's the thing he put in place. It reminds us of how Jesus said when he was asked, how should we pray? He said, give us today our daily bread. Because God wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship. He wants us to come back daily. How often do we say, God, would you just look after me this month? 
See you next month. Or even Sunday to Sunday. God, I love you. I worship you. I pray I have a good week. That God's saying, I want, I want you for myself. I want a daily relationship. I love you. And Jesus talked about this instance later on when, when people followed him for bread. He said, you're just like your forefathers. You're, you're after me for the bread. Don't you know I'm the bread? I'm the bread of life is what Jesus said. So we learn from the Exodus story. They didn't give themselves to God, but they indulged in their fleshly desires. They didn't follow him. They wandered aimlessly. Paul's talking about not being aimless here. The Israelites, they wandered aimlessly. And what should have been a 40-day journey turned into a 40-year journey where the first generation of freed Israelites did not even enter the inheritance. They missed out on their inheritance. They did not finish their race. So Paul's saying, don't be like them. They didn't finish their race. Run as if to win. What does that take? It takes effort. It takes perseverance when things are difficult. It takes a good attitude, an attitude of faith. They missed out largely because it was harder than what they expected. Where is this food? Where is Moses? He's up the mountain again with God. What's going on? Where's God? Where's the promised land? This is hard. And we can feel, yeah, this is hard. This is hard. Sometimes we just want the easy thing, don't we? Again, my son Luca hilariously recently said, uh, I said, you need to say sorry to mummy for what you said. And he said to me, saying sorry is just not that fun, though. It's laughable, but we can probably act like that sometimes, don't we? I just want to do what's fun. just want to do what comes easily. The thing is, worthwhile things are not cheap. God is producing something in you. He's weeding out things from you. He's restoring you and producing the image of his son in you. So what's Paul's advice here? Well, discipline your body. Exercise self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. So we walk in step with the Spirit. Don't run aimlessly, but rather aim very purposefully. Be purposeful in your pursuit of God, in your pursuit of obedience, knowing I can trust him. It is a work of faith, isn't it? Because we can't see the prize. We're just, we're just taking God at his word. We don't like taking God at his word, especially if we can't understand it. I'll take God at his word when I understand it. Great. But Adam and Eve, they didn't understand. Why can't we have that apple? I think I know better. It's so easy for us to say, I'll obey when I get it. I just want to say, if you're, if you're finding it very hard, the race, well done. Because it means you haven't tapped out. If, you, if you're finding your, your faith very easy, then I would be more concerned for you than the ones who are finding it very hard. In some ways. Because life is hard and following God is hard at times. If you're finding it hard, you are running. It's hard. When you run in a race, your legs burn. The lactic acid comes in and you get cramps and it's painful. If you're running and you're in pain and everything in you is hurting, keep going. They say about marathon runners, I've never done one, as I said, probably never will. Um, Yeah, at mile 19 or 20, you hit the wall. The wall where you think, uh, everything in my body is telling me, what are you doing, you fool? What are you doing to me? You're going to kill us both. But the thing they do is they keep going. They push through. And if you're going and you're, going to, and you're hitting a wall, I want to say keep going. 
Paul wants to say, keep going. Because what happened to the Israelites is they missed out on what was available. And just to be clear, I don't think this is talking about losing salvation. So if you're thinking here, if I don't run well, if I don't, you know, if I'm not a good enough Christian, then I might not get to heaven. I might not be with God. I might not be his child. I don't think that's what it's talking about here because the Israelites were already through the Red Sea. They're already on the other side. Their enemies are already defeated. Sin and death is already defeated for a Christian. You're already in. So it's not talking about you will lose your salvation. But this is what we said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says this, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. The Israelites got through. They're saved. Their oppressors dealt with. But there's still a race to run. See, our works, it's saying, will be tested. And our motives and our desires will be revealed. And only that which is built with integrity will prove to survive. It's a little bit of a difficult thing to understand. Perhaps this will help a little bit. I did a four-year degree at, uh, uh, in Brighton teaching. And one of my friends on my course, he's, his name was Simon, he would pester the lecturers all the time. He was always badgering them. What have I got to do to get a good mark on this essay? What have I got to do? What are you looking for? What answer are you looking for? Give me some books I can go to. And I was like, this guy's intense, you know. And uh, I did okay. I, I passed. I got through. I got my degree. But my friend got a first. He, he ran his race well. He got to the end. And on the day when you get the certificate and uh, the ceremony and everything, uh, I was up in, in Norwich at the youth event, and I was planning on driving down. But, you know, something in me, I just thought, not a lot to celebrate, really. I didn't do that well. I mean, I got my degree. I didn't do that well. I think my friend Simon was probably there celebrating. You see, the thing is, we'll get, we'll get there. If you're in Christ, you will get there. But you may well get there and think, I could have done a lot more. I could have done a lot better. Which one of us standing face to face with the glorious, resurrected Son of God, overwhelmed by this love that we've never seen or understood before, is going to say, no, I did enough. I think all of us will think, I could have done a lot more. I could have done, he's deserving of so much more. I could have called more people to this Jesus. And there's, there will be a sense of suffering loss Although we will be saved if we're in Jesus. We must have our minds set on that finish line. Our wreath, Paul is saying, is, a, is an eternal one. It's imperishable. Others, other uh, co- competitors, especially around Corinth, there was the Isthmian Games. That was like their Olympic Games. They would run for one of these, these kind of branch wreaths, like a crown. But it was perishable. It would, it would turn brown, it's done, over with. I mean, they've got some pride left about the event, but... How long is that going to last? Our wreath, he's saying, is eternal. Jesus was clear. Don't store up treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where nothing can destroy it. No one can steal it. Send it ahead. Send your treasure ahead. How do you do that? Live for Christ. Don't live for yourself. Trust him. Obey him. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. 
Missionary Jim Elliott, who was killed by the natives in Ecuador in the 1950s, famously said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives up what I can't keep anyway to gain what I cannot lose. And Jim Elliott himself was willing to literally give up his life. He was killed. But he would have thought, well, it's going to go anyway. And I haven't lost anything because I've already got life eternal in Jesus. So he was quick to say, this is what I'm living for. I'm going to go and be a missionary to people who may kill me. And in the end did. Because he was confident that he possessed life eternal. And he was looking to that prize. The cricketer C.T. Studd uh, was, uh, had fame and fortune. And uh, he gave it up to become a missionary. And he wrote this poem. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, it will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, it will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, Pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life. T'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone. Bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life. T'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be. If the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. See, C.T. Studd and and Jim Elliot were completely captivated. Completely captivated. They were looking to eternity. I'm not living for now. I'm just passing through this life. My home is in heaven. I'm looking to eternity. I'm looking to a greater day. And I'm looking to a worthy king. I will follow him because he has given me life eternal. I've got nothing to lose. Finally, I want to come back to what Paul says in verse 23. He says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. You see, we're pulled by this future hope. A little bit like an angler. God is there with his real, I'm reeling you in. Come, come to the finish line. Come to the finish line. Come in. So that one day, pulled in by his hope and glory, 
at the finish line, I will see him face to face. And hopefully he will not say, well started, good and faithful servant. But well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's reeling me in. And he's reeling you in to the arms of majesty as we sing. We're pulled in, but we're also pushed, motivated by the one who ran his race perfectly. See, Jesus ran to win a prize. He ran with perfect purpose and self-control, knowing exactly what his finish line looked like. When he was only 12 years old, he was missing. His parents didn't know where he was. They went looking for him. He was missing for three days. And they found him in the temple. And he was teaching the teachers. He He was amazing people with his teachers. And he said to his parents, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? You see, even as a 12-year-old, he was already clear on his aim. I know what I'm heading for. I know what I'm I'm running for. Throughout his ministry, he was offered the chance to gather fame and glory. He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. But Luke says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew what his finish line looked like. He knew, I know what I'm running for. I know what the finish line will be. The Bible says he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. When the Feast of Tabernacles was approaching, Jesus' brothers tried to encourage him to go to Judea and act publicly so that he could show himself to the world. But Jesus said, my time is not yet here. He eventually did go to the feast, not such a public way. And while he was teaching, the leaders uh, desired to seize him. But it says, no no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. A few days later, he was again teaching in the temple and the crowd was enraged by his claims. And still it says, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus knew, I've got an hour that is coming. This isn't it. This isn't it. This isn't it. I know what my finish line looks like. About three days before he was crucified, Jesus was in the temple and some Greeks sought him out. And Jesus said to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is why I'm running. This is my race. Jesus knew his race. He knew why he was there. The time and the hour that he so often referred to was when he would shed his blood. So that many could receive cleansing and truly satisfy the thirst of their hearts. That's the finish line that he was looking to. That's what he was consumed with. I know the race I'm running. And even in the garden on the night before he was taken, on the night he was taken, and and the guards came to him to take him and, and Peter as he tends to do, got quite zealous, pulled out a sword and chopped off the guard's ear. Jesus bent down, picked up the ear, healed him, turned to Peter and said, do you not realize at any moment, and I think this is true of his whole life, at any moment I could have called for 12 legions of angels from my father to come and fight for me. But I haven't finished my race yet. That's not the finish line. I've got a race to run. Do you not realize I could have done that at any moment? But I am setting my face resolutely out for my finish line. On the cross, 
after hours of cruel torment and torture, of being mocked and spatter and beaten and whipped, he hung bloody and broken to win the salvation of his bride in our place. And that was when he was able to say victoriously this Greek word translated tetelestai, which is now it's finished. It's finished. It's accomplished. I've run my race. I've crossed the finish line. It's finished. I haven't just run my race. I've won. Jesus, when he said, it's finished, said, he's saying, it's accomplished. Everything that I came to do. When I kept saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. The cross was the now. Now it's done. Now it's finished. So we're reeled in by the coming promise of life in glorious eternity and unity with God. And we're pushed by this loving display of the finish line that our Savior accomplished in his race. And when I see the King of Heaven loving me by giving his life nailed to a bloody wooden cross, dying a brutal death for my sake, I'm spurred to run. I'm spurred to run without grumbling. How can I say, oh, it's quite hard when I see my Savior, who should have been on a throne, dying for my sake. I won't look to the right or the left so much when I see the glorious one on the cross for me. I won't give my worship to other things as much when I am consumed by the one on the cross for me, the lion and the lamb. So we are compelled by the gospel to run. In Stoke-on-Trent in July 1923, in a race run over a quarter of a mile, Eric Liddell was one of the runners. At the first bend, he tripped over the legs of the English runner J.J. Gillies, falling off the track. By the time he was back on his feet, the last of the other runners was 30 yards away and moving fast, but Liddell attacked them with such pace that he finally overtook Gillies three yards from the line to win, to win before collapsing, spent to the ground. What an incredible story. I want my story to be like that. I want to get over the finish line, collapsing, spent for God. I, I run, I run. But I want to ask you this, have you fallen? Are you think, yeah, I, I'm, I more relate to the fallen over part than the running part. Perhaps that's how you're feeling. I, I'm down. I haven't really been running for a while. Well, Paul would say to you, get up. Eric Liddell would say, get up. There's a race to run. You can run this race. You can still go. Maybe you've never started this race. Do you know there's a time today you could start a race for Jesus. You could start running for him because he ran for you. You could say, I'm going to give my life to this, this king who would give his life for me, who would get off a throne and come and die for people like me. I can give my life. I can run for that king. Eric Liddell had a very funny, unconventional running style. He would, when he really got into it, he'd throw his head back and he'd kind of flail a little bit. He, as, as I said just now, he kind of attacked instead of running. And at an athletics championship in Glasgow, a visitor watching the 440-yard final in which Liddell was a long way behind the leaders at the start of the last lap. Uh, it was a two-lap race. He remarked to a Glasgow native that Liddell would be hard put to win the race. And the Glaswegian merely replied, his head not back yet. <laughs> Liddell then threw his head back and with mouth wide open, caught and passed his opponents to win the race. Is your head back? Is your head back yet? Are you looking down? Are you looking what I want? Am I getting my needs met? Or are you looking up 
to him? Is your head back? Are you, are you, are you going for it for him? See, you can get your head back. It's not easy. This life is not easy. This race is not easy. Was it uh, Churchill who said, if you're going through hell, keep going. This life is not easy. Being a Christian is not easy. God won't take you through hell, but he will take you through ravines, take you through difficult times to build you up. He doesn't need to take you through hell because he went through hell for you. He wants to grow something in you. Keep going to the finish line. Don't miss out. The Israelites missed out. Paul is saying, you could miss out. Run your race. You could miss out here. Liddell famously said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I don't, know what, I don't know about you, but I want to feel God's pleasure. I want to feel his pleasure that I'm running for him. Maybe you haven't felt God's pleasure for a long time. Maybe there are things in the way that mean you're not really running. Maybe you've got your feet up. Or perhaps there are other things you've run off track. It's not too late. If you're breathing, it's not too late to get back on track, run after him. I just felt one other thing as well, that some of us, we hate, we, we, we hate the thought of going through the motions. And I think we're right to. to. Going through the motions feels like a really horrible thought. I don't want to just go through the motions. I want it to really mean something. But I think when you're on sort of mile 13 or 14 of a marathon... There's a lot of going through the motions that's positive. It's good. Maybe you've, you're just numb. You don't even know what's going on around you. You're in pain. But you carry on. You go through the motions. And I just wanted to encourage you, if you're here, you're thinking, I, I, I want my life to be authentic and purposeful, and I want every moment to be a dream. Just to say, God, God calling us sometimes to go, keep plodding, keep pushing, keep going. Well done, if that's what you're doing. Well done. You may be here on the verge of tears thinking, you have no idea how hard this is. God would want to say, well done. Well done. Keep coming. Keep pushing through. You will know my, my joy over you, my pleasure over you. He's worthy to run after. He's worthy for our efforts. I'm just going to pray. Father, we are just amazed that, uh, that your commitment to us meant that you didn't just you didn't you didn't at the last few weeks of your life decide, oh go on then. You knew. You knew. You took days every day. You every minute, every hour, you knew. I'm I know what I'm headed towards. For the joy set before me. I thank you so much, Jesus, that you looked on us and you thought, yeah, I'm gonna win them. I'm gonna win them. You knew what it would take. You knew the agony the physical agony, the spiritual agony of being rejected by God in that moment. A completely pure unity you'd never broken before in that moment was broken so that we could come into it. Lord, we're amazed that you would love us that much. I pray you'd help us to run with eternity in our hearts. Run knowing I can't lose. There's no, there's no what, what problem with losing stuff that I can't keep anyway. I'm going to run to take hold of that for which God took hold of me for eternity. Lord, come and bless us as we run. Help us to feel your pleasure. Spur us on. Thank you that you uh, cheer us on. Thank you you do feel pleasure over those who give themselves to you. And thank you there's grace for those people who know I've fallen. I'm falling often. There's grace for those to stand again. 
I pray, help us to stand again today. I pray that our life of, of offering to you be a life of worship, be a life of joy. It's not, oh, I'll go and then I'll do it through gritted teeth, but I'll do it responding to this incredible love that I've received. Bless us, Lord God. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.